Quigley in five, underwater in the yellow lane. Jess Carling of Great Britain. Quigley goes through, the silver to Jess Carling, wonderful silver medal for Great Britain. Welcome to the Honest Athletes podcast with Lauren Quigley and Jazz Carlin. Welcome back to the Honest Athletes podcast. I hope you are all having a great week. This week, we are so excited to be joined by a very special guest. When I first met this guest, he definitely questioned if I was actually a swimmer at my mobility or lack of mobility and flexibility. But over the years, we spent many years working together in training and at international competitions. It's the team behind the athletes that really do allow us to perform at our very best. And this guest has done it all from World Championships, Commonwealth Games and the Olympics. Welcome to the podcast, my former physio, Reese Shawnee. <laughs> Thanks, Jazz. Lovely to be here. Thanks for having me on. That was a laugh, the laugh after my intro. Were you <laughs> laughing at you, you thinking that I wasn't a swimmer? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you definitely um, were well, a little stiff, I think, for swimming terms early on. Um, testament to that was, I guess, when I first met you and we did some work together, you couldn't swim for a week afterwards. Um, so yes, but uh, you definitely changed over the years, which which uh, was in your favour. Um, so Reese, obviously you worked with Jazz a lot on her teams and stuff like that. But I don't know if I've ever told you this, but the first meeting that we had was uh, quite a few years ago. It was at the European Short Course. It was my first senior great britain team so i was a bit of a rabbit in headlights anyway but everyone as teams go all the staff get introduced on day one so that you know who's who and what's what and stuff like that and i remember you being introduced this big rugby looking uh, physio and i was honestly terrified i thought even <laughs> if i break my leg somehow i'm, I'm not going to go and tell him about it i'm just going to crack on um and then obviously got to know you and and especially since i've retired and then we worked together in millfield we spent some time together. You're like a massive teddy bear. You're like the loveliest guy I've ever met. But it's funny, isn't it, how you kind of flip in between like when you're the athlete and then when you you come to the other side. But no, it's great to have you on. But before we start and talk about the teams and we gossip about what Jazz was like as an athlete, I would love for you to, because me and Jazz love to start at the start, really, and for you to explain your journey as an athlete yourself, obviously not in swimming, in rugby, and just take us through that a little bit. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, I, as every Welsh uh, kid does, gets force-fed rugby from an early age. So it became... All that mattered in the world was rugby when you're growing up in Wales. So I was lucky enough that I went through the age group system. So I ended up um, being taken into like the Welsh setup in terms of the age grade rugby. So under, under like 19s and 21s and uh, 20s or 21s back then. Um, and the Wales A kind of sevens kind of route I ended up going down. Um Never broke through to the senior national team, which was disappointing, but um, had some really amazing experiences in the age grade level rugby playing in Wales. Um, and yeah, that's all I wanted to do really growing up. I I wasn't very interested in school. Um, my mum and dad would tell you that they pull the hair out. They haven't got, well, my dad now who's left with me hasn't done left um, since I just literally wanted to be outside running around playing rugby all the time. So 
Yeah, just grew up like every Welsh kid does playing rugby. Uh, played my local club for as long as I could and then went on to play like the usual counties and was lucky enough to play in the national representative stuff. Um, and then I went professional about 19-ish, I think. Um, straight from university, kind of went into that as my full-time job and played that for a while before going back to do physiotherapy later while I was playing um, and then transitioned from, from one into the other. So Reese, was it like a smooth transition, like from sport into physio? I guess, as you said, you'd done it on the side. Was it just something you'd always wanted to do or was it something you kind of fell on, ended up going into physio? It's, it's a funny one. My mum was a physio, um, so there was always a bit of an interest there because she was so incredible. And what she used to do with in her own field of physio was I always just blow my mind. So I was like, well, that's incredible how you can do that with people. So it was always an interest, I think. Um, and when I was playing rugby, of course, you know, I had my injuries. I saw other injuries. There was an intrigue there about how they got back on the field and how I got back on the field. And I guess it kind of fueled that a little bit and brought it to life. So when I decided to go back, it was tricky because I think to be successful in rugby or any sport, as you know, Jazz and Lauren, you have to, it has to be your all, your all in. It has to be kind of your only thing that matters in the world to you, you know, that, that you're going to succeed regardless of what. And I think one of my limitations was that I was actually quite interested in a few other things while I was playing rugby. And probably, if I'm truthful, looking back, I never really fully gave myself to rugby as, as fully as I could, um, which is pro- perhaps partly why I was limited in terms of my achievement level. But in terms of, you know, I was just interested in other professions, other interests. So, decided to go back and do physio and it was it, I was lucky enough that the club I was playing with at the time accommodated me going back I think I was the only part-time player in the club at that time because I'd said look if I can go back and do it and you can accommodate it I'll stay if you can't stay then I'll probably have to leave so in the end we came to some terms which by I was the only part-time player so all the other players probably hated that because I missed all the horrible fitness training and everything else and got to kind of do the fun stuff and play and things. So that balance was quite nice. But then I think what I did was it affirmed to me that actually I was perhaps more interested in having a career away from rugby as opposed to in rugby. So, yeah, I felt it felt smooth. But like anything, I think the end of a chapter or finishing off of a chapter is quite tricky, isn't it? You know, you've known something all your life and then really you're going to a point where you close your back on that. And I think... Some people do that on their own terms. Some people, unfortunately, have to do that through injury. <clears throat> I did that by conscious choice. Um, and it was a tough choice. But then, I guess, a few weeks after I'd made the choice, it didn't haunt me. So I knew that it was probably the right decision for me. I, I wasn't thinking, oh, I, what if? And I wasn't second-guessing myself. So it felt like the right transition at that point to get into physio. So you're, I'm glad you did. I'm no jazzes as well. We love you in the swimming world. So your transition into swimming, how did that come about? Is it because we are just better than everyone else and you just wanted to be a part of that? Or did you just kind of, did it just happen by happy accident? I hope it's the first one. I love how we call it my transition. It sounds really, uh, <laughs> it's a really interesting way. But yeah, I think, um, well, in, in all honesty, um, I kind of fell into swimming, is the truth. I mean, 
Um, I was working full-time in the NHS. I was really, really incredibly lucky that one of my kind of mentors would kind of tuck me under her arm and said, just kind of like follow me a little bit, was Nicola Phillips. And Nicola Phillips, as Jars will know, is like the chef de mission for Commonwealth Games team. So an amazing physio herself, of course, and has done everything you can do as a sports physio. And I always kind of emulate, you know, looked up to Nikki and wanted to emulate everything she did. So... I guess I kind of got taken under her wing a little bit and she kind of used to kind of every now and again nudge me and I'd be walking, you know, going down one path and she'd lift me up and say, no, you're on the wrong route, go down that one. So I was lucky enough to have that influence. And then I was working full-time in the NHS and British Women were developing performance centres across the UK. And there happened to be one in Swansea in Wales. So Nikki kind of got hold of me and said, look, there's going to be an opportunity here in full-time sport. Clearly, it's time now for you to decide, you know, is it going to be NHS or is it going to be sport? She knew the answer already. I was always wanting to be in sport full-time. So, so it was a real opportunity. And in it was an interesting one for me because swimming was as far from rugby as I could get. And I think that was in part some of the attraction for me. You know, I knew very little about swimming, if I'm honest, but when I applied for the post, I hadn't really done any work in swimming. So I really kind of jumped over quite a few steps, I think, before working for British Swimming full-time. So I'd gone really from not working in swimming to working for the national team, the British team, you know, in one jump. So that was a bit of a, an eye-opener and a bit of a wake-up. I knew sport. I, th- I thought I knew sport well because I'd played professionally and I'd played sport at a high level, but it was a big contrast to what I was used to, you know, when uh, night and day from rugby to swimming and not only the athletes themselves, but the way they were coached and the environments they worked in was all different. So it was a, it was a jumping in the deep end, literally, um, moment for me then. But... Luckily, Nikki was the person who kind of nudged me to do the interview. And I don't think I would have got an interview had she not been involved in that process. I think on my CV, I wouldn't have had the experience necessary for swimming, particularly. I'd done loads of experience in other sports, in multi-game stuff, in volunteer work and things to try and build up a bit of a, I guess, a bit of a working CV. But, you know, to work for a British team in any event, you need to have had quite a bit of experience in that sport or have a level of experience which is transferable to high performance. And in all honesty, I didn't really have much of that. But I think Nikki probably gave the panel a bit of a nudge and said, look, give him an interview and see what happens. And then I was just really lucky that the interview went well and um, I was appointed. So that was the next transition, I guess, for me was, it was a huge thing leaving the NHS because the NHS, I absolutely loved. And I want to be clear, you know, I... I look back upon my NHS years as incredibly valuable years in my in my career development. And the people I met working in the NHS and the job they do in the NHS is, is incredible. And the amount of things I learned in the NHS in such a small space of time was credit to, I think, how the service, the in-service training was run there. And I took a lot of that kind of, a lot of that was a big factor in, making the decision a hard one because even though I knew sports medicine was going to be for me, I was actually surprised that I actually was enjoying working in the NHS as much as I was because it wasn't sports medicine. And I didn't think that I would be interested in working in uh, on a ward or working in a different field of physio, but there were many times where I felt 
like I could happily stay here and I could happily be in this team and work with these amazing people going forward. But there was always a nagging thing, I think. And when I talk to friends now, I always say that ultimately it felt like I was living in China, but speaking Russian, you know, it, it felt like I was, it was good, but I just wasn't speaking the same language as everybody else. And then when I moved into sports medicine full time, it then felt like I was talking to people and we were on the same wavelength about things. And probably because I was just looking at things from a sports perspective and a performance training perspective and those kinds of avenues. Um, and that was interesting. So again, a bit like the rugby, when I left and I didn't have any second thoughts, when I left the NHS and went sports medicine, I realized immediately that that was the right decision for me. It was, even though I'd left the NHS, being in sports medicine was where my where my heart was and my passion was. So yeah, it was um, a, it was a good smooth transition. And you said, Reese, um, on the same wave, wavelength, <sighs> but obviously, as I said in the intro, um, to give a bit of background, um, Reese joined the National Performance Centre in Swansea. I'd joined as a 16-year-old, so I must have been probably, when did you join, Reese? So I must have been maybe 17, 17 to 18 at the time. <laughs> Making me feel old now. <laughs> Too old. Um, testing me now. Um, oh, crikey. It must have been oh, 2008. Is that too late? Yeah, no, I think I, so I would have been 17 then. Um, before that, I think, because I think I had my children after I started. And I think my, well, my, my was born in 2007, so it probably would have been 2007, Jars, just before that, I think. Yeah. So I, obviously, a bit of background to the story. Mm-hmm. I'd joined Swansea to work with the distance coach there. And as a youngster from a very small swimming club, <sighs> not had much experience on land with any physios, um, any kind of real experience through, through that kind of thing. And so when Reese joined, we were all sent in for a screening where they're checking all these different movement patterns. And as I said from the in- intro, I think Reese, I'm going to ask you now what you thought from that first screening session. Um, but I'm not the most mobile, I'm not the most flexible. But after this session with Reese, um, I could barely swim for a week. And my coach was going, What is going on? <laughs> um, so, Reese, what were you doing in this screening that no one could as well? I was the only one that couldn't swim for a week. But what were your, th- your thoughts when you first saw me? <laughs> In fairness, I probably approached some of those sessions a bit like I had with my other athletes at the time. So um, in in, in hindsight, now looking back, I probably would have done a bit more gently. Um, But yeah, I think I was was surprised that I was expecting, of course, all of you to be like super mobile and like have incredible positional awareness of, you know, overhead and things and and yeah, that was a that was an eye opener for me. I thought, ooh, this girl is a good swimmer. Well, I I don't know how because like she can't lift her arms above her head for a start, which I thought was a basic requirement of swimming was to be able to put your arm in the air. Um, and I think the the thing that makes me laugh most about that was because that was my first real like introduction to swimming. That was, and I and I think British swimming had a range. If you remember, Jazz, British swimming had a range to come down that week and do a series of testing as well, which made it completely worse because 
the one of the only reasons they came down was because you were going to be testing in that group of people. And um, yeah, I took it in the neck quite badly on that first week because uh, there was a couple of people, I won't mention names, but a couple of people in, in posts then who were quite, you know, affirmative themselves and quite, you know, strong-willed people. And, oh, well, they just tore shreds off me, didn't they? They absolutely tore me to bits. Say, what have you done? You've wasted all our resources. We've come all the way down. She can't do the testing because you've done this. And I'm just thinking, ah, shit, yeah, maybe I've messed up a little bit here. So, um, but that was an eye-opener. That An eye-opener, I think. I wasn't expecting you to have the response that you had from that. And I think that immediately gave me kind of some insight, which probably was valuable now going forward. But yeah, made me, it's easy to laugh looking back at him at the time. I thought I might not actually make it through my probation period. You know, they're probably going to drop me now after a couple of months because I've just broken this, like one of the best prospects we've got in, in one session. So yeah, that was an eye-opener. I think um, sometimes you got to approach things with different hats on and in different ways. And I think that was a really good start to that. You know, even though I'd probably in the NHS had done a bit of that, you know, different people require different approaches and you think you know that, but then I was probably guilty of approaching all of you the same way. And I think that learning experience was good for me, but not good for you for that week. As... Um... <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing, still laughing at that story. Um, as um, a physio, because obviously the coaches, you, you speak to coaches and they say, oh, I've seen this swimmer and, you know, the." I mean, we spoke to um, a swimmer recently, one of Nutty's swimmers who he said, Nutty said, this guy could be Olympic champion. As a physio and having been in the swimming world for a long time, do you or towards the end particularly, would you recognise those swimmers yourself in, you know, in land or if you're screening them or whatever, and you think these could be fantastic swimmers? Did you have that? It's interesting, I think, as a, as a healthcare provider or perhaps like a support staff member, I think we'd love to believe that we could. Um, I, I think we'd love to say, yeah, I could see it. I could see it a mile away. I think... What I would say is that there are definitely individuals that come along and you can appreciate the balance they have, you know, in terms of their the way they approach things mentally, their, their kind of mental attitude towards training, towards conditioning, towards recovery, um, coupled with the fact that they have, you know, some, some established kind of capacities already. So, you're thinking, oh, yeah, this person can do this. They're explosive. They're, they're jump scores. My cat's going to run across the screen now. No, she's just going to run. Um, they have, you know, amazing jump scores. They have this credible, like, profile, you know. But, of course, you know, I wouldn't pretend that I would go to the pool and I would look in the pool and go, oh, lane seven, there's somebody you could be. You know, I think I'll, I'll admit, certainly early on in, in my career, that I wouldn't have been something that I would have. I think I could probably tell somebody was a good swimmer or not a good swimmer at the start, but I, I couldn't really tell you why they were a good swimmer at the start. Towards the end of that, I can I, I could definitely appreciate sitting there, watching people swim, going, ah, that person could improve in this or could improve in that. And that's only because I'd spent so much time with amazing coaches and learned so much about what to look for. And, you know, 
the technical requirements of certain strokes are very different and you kind of get into a groove of looking for key kind of indicators of that. Um, but I would still, I would still trust upon the coach's perspective in terms of in the water. I wouldn't say this person is going to be world-class. I think I would trust the coaches to say this person is going to be world-class. They have what they need, but we need to make sure everything around the swimming is also world-class. And I think that's where my role would be most focused. And that's where I think I would definitely have the insight to be able to say that's going to be an issue for us if we don't address that now. You know, that 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 restriction is going to become a problem at this point if we don't address it now. And, you know, definitely develop the capacity for identifying those areas. Um, but I would still also now be able to appreciate um, a good swimmer when I see one. And, I mean, that... I think there are examples of that even. I, I remember being in the, the which competition it is all blurs into one now. I think it may have been the Commonwealth Games. No, it wouldn't have been the Commonwealth Games, of course, a World Championship event when they the swimmers were in the when the, the cool down pool and there were so many of them in each lane that they were just cooling down swimming in, you know, rotation. Um I think it was um uh, Lochte in one lane along with Kate Campbell in the same lane I think one after the other and they just couldn't swim slow enough to, to to recover it was like they were taking one stroke every four of all the other swimmers and they're in the pool with the top of the tree one percent swimmers in the world and they still couldn't swim slowly enough to swim within that rotation and it got me really interested to watch how they move and to see what it was that was making them so efficient and then you start to learn a little bit of the intricacies of the sport I think which you know which we won't get into but you can start to spot those things then in other swimmers and you, you look to see where they have those same attributes so I think that's a long-winded answer to that question I think the truth is I would still rely on the coaches to say this person is going to be world-class if they can address these things, but I'm certainly in a position where <clears throat> I could contribute to discussion around whether they would be world-class everywhere else. If that makes sense. No, it definitely makes sense. And I think, um, as you said, even sometimes for myself, not being the most flexible, mobile athlete, but that didn't necessarily um, affect me in the pool. It was how I could work with what I had. And as you said, I know I I do listen to you and quote back on you a lot. You say like, we're all born with our own mobility and how we move. And it's about maximizing our own selves to become those best athletes or whatever that it is. Um, But moving forward, obviously you said joining Swansea, a national center, very new to the sport. How have you like developed over the years to learn with swimming? I guess it's probably could be quite a long question, but how has your knowledge, I guess, expanded through the sport? Um, I remember when you brought in a lot of the shoulder mobility, which as swimmers, that was all very new to us. We'd never very much done a lot of the work on land to try and help us in the water. But how have you kind of developed over the years to learn how to maximise, to get the most out of our swimming and on land as well? I think flying by the seat of my pants probably answers the question. You know, I think I'm not, I, you know, of course, when you're, when you're presented with a new group of athletes, you do your research, you go away and you kind of try and read about the sport. You kind of try and read a little bit about the strokes. You try and read about the physiology, the training, the requirements, the loads, the volumes and the workloads and things. 
The biggest learning curve, though, is literally sitting sitting poolside talking to coaches. That is where the majority of my learning was done. Um, far greater than sitting there reading textbooks or journals on the subject. Um, and that was something that was also interesting was that, you know, when you are delivering treatments or you're trying to help a patient go through a, like an injury process, you're trying to base your interventions on evidence, on an evidence-based approach and you're trying to use evidence to inform your decision-making. I would say in regards to swimming, the majority of my learning was through experience and through conversations with experts, you know, and I think you're always in danger of there being some associated bias then because you're relying on the opinions of experts and they may have their own take on things, of course, but the beauty of the role I was in that I was able to access multiple experts and it wasn't just one person. So, you know, I remember sitting poolside with Bud McAllister, who was the person obviously who came to work with in Swansea and um, people like uh, uh, Dave Haller in Cardiff, who has a, just an enormous knowledge bank of swimming that if I studied swimming for the next hundred years, I still wouldn't have anywhere near as much insight as these people. So um, I think that in those examples, that their, their kind of their wisdom and their experience was so valuable to me that it really kind of served as like a crash course, I think, in swimming. I couldn't understand swimming at first. I really struggled to understand why you guys did the meters, you did the meterage you did. I was shaking my head going, this is like madness. Why are they doing all of these, all of these hours doing, you know, seemingly like slow work. And I couldn't understand the physiology of aerobic base. And I hadn't really developed my understanding around some of those areas, you know, so sitting poolside with a cup of tea, talking to coaches, you know, and also gaining the coaches trust. I think that was also really important because my role as a physio, and you mentioned those classes, Jazz, that we did where we did some kind of shoulder stability classes that you all despised and I made you do three times a week. Um, like the, being given access to you to do those things was only because I think I'd spent a lot of time early on talking to coaches about swimming. And when the coach then saw you as somebody interested in swimming, they also then valued your input in how swimming could be improved upon. And some, some coaches were quite fixed in, in their philosophies and others were more open-minded, but regardless, I think once you kind of crack the shell and you go on the inside of the circle, they, you know, I was really then given free reign to kind of do on land with you, whatever I wanted. And I think that's where, it got really interesting for me then was because basically you became my guinea pigs, didn't you? In Swansea, you know, we used to do all sorts of weird things and, and sometimes things didn't work and sometimes they did. And sometimes they worked only if you did them a lot. And some, you know, it was a sort of trial and error was a huge part of, of that. And I think one of the, one of the problems as a physio is that because you're always trying to be based on evidence and you're trying to look at the evidence body out there to support your decisions, there just wasn't any uh, to do what with the population that I wanted to work with. So there isn't a huge amount of research on this particular type of exercise in elite swimmers in this. So there's only, so you can be informed by what's out there and you can make decisions based on that breath, but ultimately you're trialing things you're experimenting on you you're trialing it and you're and you're, you're doing that in safe in safe ways 
but you're trying to be novel and be creative with your interventions to suit the population. And then the research often catches up with you later, you know, years later, then you'll see a paper on it and you think, oh yeah, we did that, you know, five years ago, but because we figured it out that we needed it, you know, um, but the co- but, but to answer your question succinctly, the coaches were the resource for knowledge. I um, I always used to say on every single team that the physios were always the hardest working. Um, my respect for physios only went up every time I did a team, especially towards the latter end of my swimming. Just and I would always find myself gravitating towards where the physios were set up. I used to love chatting to them and stuff like that. But especially at competitions, you guys were first in, last out, because you had to be there when the athletes were there. So whoever was swimming first, you had to be there. And whoever was the last one swimming, still swimming down, you had to be there. So I always found, well, just had complete respect for that because it was long, long days. And also, as a physiotherapist, I don't know when you realised this, probably very early on as you started to be a physio, was you're not just, it's not just about my shoulder hurts or my knee hurts, someone coming in and saying that. You are a therapist as well. And often for me, it was like a, it was a lifeline for me within sport. And I used to love going to see the physio sometimes not just for them to sort me out physically, but I would get on that physio bed and it would be like, oh, this is what's happened this week. And it'd be like, and it was like you had another job title of kind of everything else, just being there for the athletes. And and I would get off the physio bed feeling so much better than when I got on it. Do you enjoy that side of being a physio of like, actually, no, you are much more than just Reese sort my shoulder out. Yeah, I mean, the hours, do I, do I miss the hours? I don't, I'm not sure. I mean, the, the, the hours were incredibly long, weren't they? I mean, when you are like a physio doing nine to five is fine. I think when you, when you work in sport, you soon realize that actually there is no clock on your employment. You are on call pretty much around the clock, you know, and that can be quite a taxing thing. And that is really focused when you're in a competition environment. I mean, when you go away with a team, you are on as much as you need to be. You are on, you're just on all the time. You know, you're working around the clock. And I think, like you said, one of the one of the challenges is, of course, we have to be there two hours before the first person swims because that's normally when the first athlete arrives to start their preparation. And then normally the you stay, you know, you get back in the day for a short spell, but then you're back two hours before the next evening session starts. And then often you're there for at least like an hour and a half after the evening session finishes before you get back then. So what normally happens is in in big competitions, like in Commonwealth Games events or things of that nature, you often find that you're having your dinner at like one in the morning or something, you know, Um, and then you're getting up at five o'clock to get on the bus to travel to the pool to get, you know. But when you're in competition, I think you go into this this robot mode of like, just got to get a job done, doesn't matter if I'm tired it's about the bigger picture so that and also can be quite exciting you know because it can be you're, you're working on adrenaline you know and then when you finish the competition just crash you know and just like sleep for a week um so that side of it I think is very exciting but when I, when I first started working British Serbian I did so many competitions I think for the first 
several years of my employment, I was on every single trip the British women did, you know, and that was pretty much felt like every month I was away from home. So my incredible wife at home putting up with that and the kids was like, it wouldn't have been possible without that. Um, but I, I do love that a bit of a buzz. Um, the environment one where you're more than a therapist is a really interesting one, isn't it? Because that is actually a really interesting and potentially a really problematic um, thing because quite often physios would be the last person to speak to the athlete before they go to the call room. So obviously people watching this will be familiar perhaps with the call room scenario where swimmers go into a room and they're held like cattle for like 20 minutes before they're then allowed or sometimes longer than that before they can race. They're in a special holding room. So before they go over to that, often swimmers are having their final preparations done, which may or may not include physio, but normally that prep's done in the physio area where the kind of preparation zones are also housed. So if you, you could easily say the wrong thing to an athlete at a very critical time that could really impact negatively or positively, I guess, on their performance. So that was a really interesting learning curve for me because there were some people who needed a bit of a cuddle and there were others that you just knew not to say a word to, you know, and that was really interesting across even swimmers who were swimming the same race. Each athlete had their own individual needs and requirements. So you started to learn. And I think when you're delivering performance sport healthcare, I guess, a pivotal part and a critical part of understanding how to do that well is to understand the population you're working with inside out. And you can have all of the physiotherapeutic skill sets you want. doesn't make a difference. If you don't know how an athlete responds to a particular thing at a particular time, then it's of no value. I mean, I'd have people compete in the same race. One of them needed one thing and one of them needed comp something completely different. Equally, I knew that if I saw Jazz, for example, and did a certain type of treatment with her, I'm going to have a shit swim for, she's going to be shit, crap in the water for the next 24 hours. So you'd have to learn that. And sometimes you learn that through making the mistake of doing the wrong thing at the, at the most important time. And you quickly try to kind of get skilled with that. The responsibility of that then is an important one, isn't it? Because, you know, there's a patient confidentiality component to, to patient interactions as a healthcare provider. And, you know, sometimes swimmers would say things to you on the bed or they would open up to you in a way which sometimes could make you think, oh dear, I could really do with communicating this with somebody else because this is quite really important, you know? Um, and th those can be difficult situations to navigate. Um, but of course, you mentioned, Lauren, that, you know, you found that quite therapeutic in itself, like lying on the bed and just being able to kind of vent. And, um, you know, Bill Beswick does a lot of like sports psychology um, consult consultation work in, in British women and he's an amazing, amazing man. And one of the things from my, one of my, from my many times now, and I've been lucky enough to listen to him speak so many times. And one of the things we talked about was how I felt that physios were like the emotional allies of swimmers when we were in competition. It was almost like the coaches would give them a hard time and then the, the, the physios would give them the comfort going, ah, oh, it's okay, you know? So we became like these unofficial kind of 
dampeners, I think, of emotions, which I guess, if you look at it, really is, is, a, is a recipe for disaster. But but actually kind of only works when you know the population really fantastically well, you know, and then, and then of course, later, later competitions and environments, we were lucky enough to have sports psych there as well, which, which, which would really, I think, facilitate really meaningful conversations. And I think sports psychology probably had a hard time in swimming for quite a while when I was working in swimming, it wasn't really embraced. I don't think as, as, as fully as it could have been done early on. And towards the later stages of my time working in high-performance swimming, that was really becoming a valuable service that people were putting a lot of stock in. So I felt actually a bit relieved about that because it meant that there was an immediate person who would be suitable to have communications with about some sensitive things that may have come up, you know, and swimmers were then happy for us to talk about some of the things they'd shared with that person because they knew that person would also see it in a very sympathetic way. So I felt the input of sports psychology was actually a bit of a pressure valve for physio as well, because it meant that a lot of the burden and responsibility of that could be shared in that environment. And it's interesting, Lauren, isn't it, that you found that therapeutic and that probably had nothing to do with any intervention that was done on the bed with you. It was more to do with the fact that you were given an opportunity just to talk about your feelings for, 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 an, for 40 minutes or something. And, ha- and had the physio go, oh, this, this looked beautiful, this leg. Look how loose this leg is. It's the best leg I've ever seen, you know? Look how mobile, oh, this is a world-class leg, off you go. That's kind of what physio was in, in a big part of it, was a lot of the people who came to physio in high-performance sports didn't have any injuries. They just felt they needed, you know, things to be validated and things to be signed off. And people would come through and go, just check this for me, just me. And you go, oh yeah, that's like, that's never been as loose in your life. That's perfect. Look at that. Or oh, that's, that's, that's just where we want it to be. And they go, oh, brilliant. You know, and you can see the weight. So it's almost like a little bit of dependence, which we were, we've tried to move swimmers away from needing and athletes away from needing and give them the tools to be able to be, you know, resilient themselves and not need that kind of external validation. But it goes on, doesn't it? Because we are people after all, and we're all emotional creatures. And sometimes just checking in with somebody going, could you just check? Right, it is okay, right, good. I got my ducks in a row now. I feel ready to go and, and do what I need to do in the water. So it's really interesting you saying that, Laura. I think a lot of people actually, if I look back, any interventions that were done at those stages would have been relatively meaningless in terms of performance, but it was much more much more meaningful in terms of, helping that individual prepare psychologically, I think, for getting in the water at that time. But yeah, it's a really interesting point. Isn't it funny as well, as you say, that if someone got on the bed and they were like the t- really tight and not feeling great, like is, if someone had said to you, oh, you don't look good, you're not like in good range, da, 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 how mentally that can actually change your approach to certain situations. It is funny. Yeah. Um yeah. But I do like completely agree with Lauren and yourself about um, how it is having that hand of support as well. Because I think you guys as a support team, as I said before, you are the team behind the athletes that make such a huge part. You allow it all to happen. You're all there working to try and help all of the athletes just perform at their best and by the smallest margins as well. So with that being said, I guess the team behind the team, 
do you feel the emotions, the highs, the lows? Like how, because I know from experience, even from watching, from even now from an outside perspective, watching a games or a competition and being a part of it, I feel like I'm living a roller coaster where you're seeing some people elated with happiness, other people on a roller coaster and feeling the lows, the upset, the tears. How do you feel like as a support team behind athletes, I guess, because you've got to keep some level of composure where you hold it together and you are, as you said, a huge support and can make a huge difference. How do you handle yourself around those competitions? It's it's tough, isn't it? I think, like, firstly, I guess, like, I'm talking here about physio, of course, but, like, the wider support team is, of course, equally valuable and they've all got key roles and responsibilities that are, you know, invaluable in terms of performance. But, like, that being the last person to see the athlete, you're often also the first you know, so you often also then sometimes are tasked with picking up the pieces a little bit, which is incredible responsibility for somebody to have to do, um, because saying the right or wrong thing in that context is probably even more potentially impactful than than before they swim. You know, um, the, you know, and there's nothing worse than when a swimmer gets out and they haven't performed as they wanted, and they're upset, and it's a a key race or it's an important moment for them and. Again, knowing the athletes, sometimes it's important to approach them. Some, sometimes you'd sit back and you'd wait for them to come to you. Um, of course, often the coach would have made their way around and is talking to them as they're walking across from getting out of the pool and things like that. But delicately, Jazz, I think, is the answer to your question. I think, you know, I those, again, you have to be, I think, just a really good communicator and reader of people, I think, to be in this game. I think you have to try and understand when, what it is the athlete needs and the thing they might need is not you. And you have to be really willing to not put yourself there because you almost make yourself feel better if I, by trying to do the right thing. You have to sometimes know that actually the last thing they might need right now is to speak to another person aside from their coach. So you have to be very very kind of constrained in not trying to put yourself forward to be this person who is a savior and to try and fall into the trap of trying to do that i think some people will want that and emotionally yeah i would lie if i said there wasn't a bit of a butterfly in my stomach every time one of you girls from swansea swam it was always like I, even though we were there with British swimming or we were there, you know, it would still be a little bit more visceral. It would still be a little bit more real when you go, because you, you'd seen you guys every day putting this work in. And regardless of, I like to think I did the best I could to not show that. And I tried to treat everybody exactly the same when we were away, but inside probably I was still rooting, I think for, for you girls to really shine and to do well, because I knew you personally as well as professionally, you know? Um, and that was, and that's difficult because then you have to be able to keep those emotions in check because you have to be able to not prioritize somebody that you know, you have to treat everybody exactly the same. And I, I'm confident I was able to do that, but inside I still had this little place in my heart, which was like, come on, let's just get this. But you know, I think we've spoken about this before, Jazz. I mean, in all of the years I worked with swimming, you could probably count on one hand the amount of races I've seen in the performance environment because when somebody is swimming, somebody else is preparing. When somebody else is prepare, uh, preparing or, or, or swimming down, somebody else is recovering. 
you know, or somebody's going again later on. So my job wasn't to watch the swimmers compete. It was to help them prepare to compete. And that often meant that we didn't actually watch any swimming at all. So if somebody's watching this thinking that you're going to be a swimmer, Olympic physio, and you're going to go and you're going to watch all the races, well, I think I can bust your bubble a little bit because I think I probably watched one or two races and they would only be the races on the final days where they're the last people competing. So often it would be the distance athletes, Jazz, luckily. So I got to see you a couple of times because the distance races were often the last ones that were on, you know, so the 1500 or the 800 was often among those last races. So you could often sneak off and have a look around the corner and kind of watch those guys finish off because there was nobody else to go after you. So, but certainly, you know, it's an interesting dynamic when you're working in a performance environment. I think looking at it from the outside in, it looks like it's very glamorous and it looks like there's, you know, it's all kind of, you know, kitting out and, you know, nice jet jetting off to the sunsets and stuff. But the truth is you often only see the insides of hotels and pools and you only see rooms in those hotels and pools and, you know, not being able to watch much swimming meant that often you might not even know the result when the swimmer comes back and you'd be like, how'd you go to make it back? Right. Yes. Yes. High five. You know, it's like you have to be quite tentative on how you approach some of those things. And like, you know, jazz, you might be swimming, you know, you might be upset from not having swum well in your heat, but that is only one event. Then you've got multiple events across the week and you have to then get yourself going again. So part of the job of physio was to go, right, let's get back on it. Let's get your recovery done. Let's, you know, try to bring them back to the moment and try to get them to refocus on just getting the recovery done and prioritized. And then they can do their crying later on. They have to get through so much of, you know, and get those things, you know, get those things going. So difficult, Jazz. I think, you know, the role of physio is challenging, I think, not from the actual physio work. That wasn't, I don't think, ever really that challenge. I don't think I didn't find, but it was the long hours and it was the emotion around the, the performance element that was that created the pressure i think that then you know meant that decisions had to be made quickly and it was the speed of things having to be done was what i think was the most challenging aspect but yeah hopefully that answered that question somewhere no that definitely answered the question and there's there's so much going on in my head from different parts of what you said because it's so true i mean we've said it before where People say, oh, gosh, you're so lucky because you've travelled so many places. But particularly when it's a competition, it's like, well, you see the hotel and you see the pool. So although, yes, I've been to Kazan, um, actually, I only saw the hotel and the pool. I didn't see any of Russia. And so you are very grateful to have <clears throat> to have travelled. But at the same time, you know, you didn't see much. But so it's like a whole mixed bag. I wanted to put you on the spot a bit, Reese. Because I was thinking before the podcast, what would I want to know off Reese? And my question that I was going to ask before when I was thinking about it was, what's the favorite, your favorite race you've ever watched? But then I've got in my notes here, well, he didn't watch much because he's a physio and they don't get to see anything. And then you've just said it anyway. But so my, my question <coughs> then changed to what, what is one moment? that comes straight to mind where you just felt so proud of one of your athletes, like either you saw the race or it was a moment when they came back after the race or just something that, like that, that you just, you, you just felt elated. 
Well, I thought you were going to ask me what my favourite Harry Potter was. I have to say, I think that's... Well, that's coming, but I've got to build up <laughs> to that, you see. <laughs> I mean, of course, like, one incredibly, like, get-in-there moment was when this girl qualified for London, wasn't it? After, you know, uh, Rio, sorry, after missing out on London, you know? And having watched Jazz go through the emotions of missing out on London and and how catastrophic that was in terms of you know just destroying somebody's desire like just incredibly impactful jazz and and I think for being able to witness somebody somehow dealing with that disappointment and then being able to refocus recommit and then deliver on getting to Rio was one of those special moments for me to witness um and by which point, actually, towards the end of that prep, she wasn't even in Swansea anymore. She was in Bath, of course, doing her preparation there. But it didn't matter. It didn't matter to me where she was because it was all about her getting there. And I just felt like this incredible pride for her. And I say that without being patronised in any way, you know, and not right to be proud of it. It was just I felt so happy for her that she was able to realise that because... She missed out on London and there was a host of circumstances leading into that, I think, which really didn't go in in her favour that she'll never talk about because she's not that kind of person. But, you know, for Rio, I remember seeing Jazz a few months after she decided she was going to go for it again. And the change in her was incredible to see in somebody. She'd obviously flipped the switch at that point and gone, I'm all in you and I'm having this and I'm going to not let any stone unturned and I'm going to, you know, and there were moments in Jazz's earlier years where she could be a little challenging. She could be a little bit, you know, not always wanting to do this, you know, but I, I saw in her this determination then and that was a really lovely moment, I think. So obviously that key moment since you know jazz is with us is, is, is also an amazing moment to bring back um there are a couple of like like i guess you know there are lovely moments when i see key people achieve certain things you know qualifying a qualifying an event you know you know alice's 200 in gold coast was very special you know and because, because what that girl had been through was, was you know, unbelievable. If her story ever comes out, what she's had to put up with, like to achieve that was remarkable. And like t- to get her there, you know, then, you know, people even later on now, Jess literally, and I've, I, I'm out of British women's environment now, but then to see some of those, those athletes meddling in, you know, in Tokyo was very, very special. And, you know, I know that the people I mentioned are Welsh. I don't want to come as cross as just being proud of the Welsh ones. But, you know, if anybody deserved a medal, it was Callum. And to see him kind of get that in Tokyo, I just, oh, I felt so excited for him and for Gemma. You know, I felt really happy for them that he all of all, if you're ever going to work with a professional person in a sport, then he would be the model, I think, of that person. And like, I always want those people who are, like that to be the ones who succeed the most because they are doing everything they can to be the best they can. And he's one of those. And to see him do that was a very special touching moment as well. 
Um, of course, from a pride point of view, you know, aside from seeing some swimmers that I've worked with do very well and achieve things, you know, as a physio, I mean, being selected to be part of Team Wales was one of the most, my biggest moments for me. And when I grew up as a physio, grew up as a physio, listen to me, when I when I was working as a physio and I moved into sport and I was growing up within physio, you know, I had my eyes set on being a sports physio and my, one of my first goals was to be involved in, an, in a Commonwealth Games, to be, in, to be part of Team Wales because Nicky Phillips, you know, had spoken so much about that to me and had given me these stories and I was just like wide-eyed, like, oh my God, that's so incredible. I got I to gotta try and get on one of these teams. So making that Welsh team, being very Welsh and wanting to represent Wales and be on Team Wales was huge, huge moment for me from a pride point of view. And then, of course, um, being part of getting the call that I would be, I, I'd been selected for the London Olympic team uh, was was hugely was a huge moment for me as well. I was desperate to be involved in that. Um, in many ways, I, I, I guess that was a target that I had professionally to be involved in that competition. But I also wanted to be able to witness the games environment. And I wanted to be able to support the athletes in that environment and to see what it was all about, to see whether or not I could cope with that and to see whether or not I was able to tolerate being in that kind of pressured environment. And yeah, it was incredible. So those moments really, and there's hundreds of moments really, there's loads of individual swims. There's loads of moments where people haven't done brilliantly, but have done well in their own context of where they are. You know, people have made a British, you know, final, or people have, you know, have PB'd at a critical moment when everything was against them and, there's endless little moments like that, Lauren, that I could touch upon, you know, but of course the show's not long enough to talk about them. It's been so many, but, you know, some of the key ones like stand out when I see some of the people I've worked with in and out from a young age, like Jazz said, she's probably 16 when we started and to see her realize her dream then, you know, was incredible. And then to watch what happened, you know, in Rio, you know, I was fortunate to be involved with the Rio games as well, you know, but um, when it came to Jazz's events being on, I think I was actually back in the UK. So I was watching on telly with the rest of the world and I was, I want to get that right. I think I was. Yeah. No, I don't know if I was. I may have been watching it in, anyway, regardless, memories are blurred now, but I remember watching her, you know, get those, you know, get those silver medals. And it was just like, is this really happening? You know, so like we're just punch, you know, punching the air and just brought back a lot of memories from the from the journey that, you know, Jazz had been on. And I was just really lucky that I'd been a part of it early on, you know. That's nice. Thanks for that <laughs> And um I guess you have to experience it with everyone too, you know, it's yeah. you're seeing everyone's journeys and all the challenges and happy moments and real challenging moments too. Um, but I guess for so, some of the listeners um, that are listening to you today, thinking about, oh, they're obviously taking part in sport. Um, what kind of top tips would you have looking after yourself? I know this is going to be quite a big question, a broad question, <laughs> but do you have any tips for someone, I guess, um, it's quite new, doesn't know how necessarily to look after their body outside of um, if we focus on maybe more swimming, focus on um, how to look after their 
themselves outside of the pool or what areas that they can work on to help them be be the fastest in the pool? I think that that's actually an easy question, I think, Josh, to answer, because I think what we do very well now is we appreciate the value of land conditioning on swim performance. I think we're in a place now with us really, really accepted worldwide and is a big part of uh, preparing athletes for a competition. We have become, I think, experts at doing preparation techniques for swimmers. We understand the intricacies of a, you know, an activation routine or a kind of, you know, a PAP routine and these kind of things that the, the stuff that really would get somebody firing up and be at their best. We're still learning about it. I think we are very, very diligent with how we approach those aspects of preparation now, even within competition. So that, that pre-race plan, that preparation plan, um, the priming and all of that stuff, we understand really well. If somebody wants to make a huge difference to their performance, they should become the world's best recoverer. That's why I would say is what they should focus on. That is still a very poorly understood area as, as far as I'm concerned. I see people making fundamental mistakes all the time when it comes to recovery. And I don't, and, 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 and the amazing thing is, I don't really think there's one recovery intervention that's better than anything else. You know, I think probably sleep would be top of the tree anyway. But apart from your, if we take away for a moment, you know, hydration, nutrition, and sleep, of course, being some of the key pillars of your recovery or preparation strategy anyway. And we're talking about how you kind of unwind from your training. You know, I often talk to my swimmers and my athletes about the need to kind of put down the baggage from today so that you don't have to carry that tomorrow. I think that's one thing that I talk to my young athletes about all the time is that if you fail to recover, you accumulatively pick up lots of little things as you're going forward and ultimately that impacts upon your ability to be at your best I think when you need to be so uh, the, the compound effect of training and sorry of recovering is the important aspect but because often people will do recovery and not feel an immediate change they think it's of no value but the, but the big mistake that's made is that recovery needs to be done religiously regardless of how you you know it needs to be done routinely every day so that you build up this huge reserve of recovery and you might not even appreciate you you've done that recovery until you're able to turn around back-to-back amazing swims at the pivotal moment later on in your career but I think people try to try to work on problems they're having when they're trying to turn those swims around. And really the work they needed should have been done over the months and years leading into that moment. So I would say to any swimmer watching this, become the world's best at recovering. And I, and I, often, I often joke with my swimmers and I have no research to back this up, but from my time in swimming and what time I've spent with athletes, I often tell them that they need to be investing 30% of their training load in recovery. So if they're training for 10 hours a week, I often say they owe me three hours a week of active recovery around their sessions. You know, or if they're doing 20 hours a week, they owe me six hours a week. And as you go up, you need more and more and more of it. And I often joke, and I say, that's the entry level. You know, that's where I'd expect 
you to be basic, doing basic levels of recovery, which if you're training 10 hours a week, three hours a week is only really like half an hour a day, isn't it? Which is not much at all. So it's a minimum amount of actual recovery work you're doing. But if you think you're training twice in that week, there's two opportunities to get half an hour done. How hard is that? That's actually pretty easy. But what we see people do is not take advantage of that. I've worked with athletes who seem to be just recovering as a full-time job. Like they've made it, they've, they've, they've go after recovery so, so vigorously that they actually do much more than 30% worth of recovery, I would say. And just to clarify this for everyone, I'm not talking about, you know, massage or foam rolling or sitting on a ball or strapping. I'm talking about everything that you can do to make you feel better. Recovery for you might be going for a walk with a dog. It might be that you're, you're dedicating time towards that. I would say there is some targeted recovery windows and I do like people to try and take advantage of those windows. And I like them to be, to do it within a reasonable time to having finished their exercise. And even though there's some conflicting information out there on that, I find the people who generally prioritize their recovery after they've done their work tend to be able to get through it better than those who then leave it later on in the day to do it. So another thing I talk to my young guys about is what will take you half an hour in the right moment of the day will take you an hour and a half in the evening to do. So why not just do it at the time and not put it on the shelf and then have to pick it up in the evening whereby your body's cooled down, things are harder to access, you're having difficulty working on some of those key corners or positions. And of course, you might be somebody like Jazz who has a particular requirement. So, you know, if, if Jazz was recovering, we would prioritize that around like lats, pecs, you know, shoulders, because that's where she did all of her work. That was where the majority of Jazz's propulsion was generated from. So, you know, like a Formula One car changing the tires regularly, that was her area that she needed to deal with. And if she left that for a few days, she'd often get a niggly shoulder or she'd she'd lose a bit of distance in the pool. I think Jazz would kind of contest that. So you might know your body and you pick your areas. But regardless of what you're doing, whether you're foam rolling, whether you're using electrical devices to stimulate muscles, whether you're putting hot packs or cold packs or ice baths or warm baths or walking or sitting on an exercise bike or doing something, doing something is important. And you need to figure out what makes you feel better after you've done exercise. And every one of you might find that it's a little bit different. And there's a little bit of a different mix that you need to have that suits your body. But a day off sitting on the sofa isn't recovery for me. It is. It might be mentally re mental recovery, which is hugely important. But in terms of physical recovery, I would say that's almost always going to be an active process of some, of some sort. It's always going to be moving around with no intensity, just working through some patterns or shapes like yoga or plyo, doing something whereby you're trying to reset your body for tomorrow's endeavor. And every day seems like a little bit of a mini mountain and you get through it and then you start again. And if you can get in the mindset of doing that, I think that's the bit, Jazz, I think for me, that is what would be most valuable to explore is people's recovery strategies. It's the, it's the neglected thing. It's the, I finished my swimming. I have to get a school. I have to get to work. I have to go home for my sleep. I, I got a long drive. I want to get back. I'll do it later. All of those things are what people talk about. But the ones who make it a priority seem to also be coping quite well with you know things and again this is talking about my experience with swimming, but it was always the ones who were best at recovering 
seem to need me less as well, you know, from my experience, which I think is wonderful because I want to do as little work as I can. So the people who need me less are, you know, high on my list of people I like. And they were able to do that. And not only that, but an interesting sideline to that story, Jazz, is when we often go to competitions and we have to set up the physio area, as a physio team, we often go in quite early. So we try to get the best space, don't we? We try to corner our little area off, you know, like a dog marking his territory. We find our little corner, we put our banners up and posters up and we take the floor and we do all of our stuff to try and... And what I've seen in those moments is I've seen individual athletes from other countries arriving far before the rest of their countries to do individual work. I've seen I've seen individuals staying on after everyone's gone home to do individual-based work. And it wouldn't surprise you to know that those people I've seen are among the best athletes the sport's ever seen. So I would say from my experience... You might not read a book about what they do. You might not see a video of how they do it. But having been witness to being able to be in that environment and see it firsthand, they're often the first people there themselves and the last people, last people to leave. They, are, they, they, they treat their prep and their recovery like they do their actual racing. You know? And I think that mindset is what separates often the best from the, well, good from great, isn't it? I think is that, is that extra bit of attention to detail. What a great answer, hey Jazz. That was um, really good, but I'm not I'm not surprised, Reese. I love hearing you talk. It's great. <laughs> we'll get into the serious stuff now. As we are in December, I know you're a fellow Christmas elf, like I am. I'm employed by Father Christmas, we are. We're not really supposed to reveal that, but I'm going to do it. I'm expecting his call on any time, so it might be. (laughs) It's coming, it's coming. I spoke to him the other day. Um, We're like that, me and him. So, favourite Christmas film? Uh, The immediate knee-jerk is Elf, of course. Um, It's a winner, you know, I'm trying to think. I am a big fan of Home Alone as well, so it would be between Home Alone and Elf, I think. Okay. Favourite Christmas song? Oh, well, Mariah Carey, of course. Like, oh, know. it has to be. And your favourite thing on the Christmas dinner plate? My favourite. Now, we had a very long, in-depth conversation about this on the Millfield camp. It is. It's, 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 it's a tricky one with so many wonderful things to choose from. <laughs> I mean, um, I, We've stumped him, Jazz. Uh, it's not. It's, it's because I think when... The gravy, Lauren. I think it has to be when that's done right. It's a very, it's, it's a special thing. It's like its own food group, you know. And like when you have this, you know, the biggest problem with gravy, Lauren, and we're going to get into this. We're getting into it. Is is I like my gravy to stay on my food. Do you know what I mean? I like it to be on my food and to kind of coat my food. I don't want no runny gravy, Lauren. If no, you want to see it, stick on. If you want to see an upset Reese, give him some runny gravy and you'll <laughs> I chuck that plate out the window. <laughs> <laughs> I know how passionate you'd get about that because when I'm we go sauce, on the Millfield camp... I don't care what meat I have on my roast dinners. I have to have mint sauce with my roast dinners. Regardless, I absolutely oh. love mint sauce as well. So. See, you see, it just you just keep listing things now. It's like when we're on the Millfield camps. We've <laughs> noticed all we talk about is food outside of the actual <laughs> work. It's great. Um, I just wanted to ask one more question, and that would be if 
there's a lot of aspiring physios out there and as someone who has reached the pinnacle of swimming um, and done all the teams and experienced you know the highs the lows and everything like that what one piece of advice would would you give to someone who is wanting to go into that profession and try and do the some of the things that you've done within the sport um i think that what i would suggest is that they early on in their career try to find somebody that can help them navigate it the find a, find a mentor find somebody that they can ask questions of that will help them make some decisions around how they spend their time I was really lucky that that was given to me early on I didn't even look for it and it was only like retrospectively that I, I can really see how many decisions were made for me almost um, so Nicola did that for me she was you're going to do this volunteer work coming up. I went, Am I? Okay, right. Brilliant. You're going to cover this event. You know, it's a, it's, it's a race. It's like a, a half marathon. You're going to do that with us. Okay, no problem. You're going to cover this. Like, So I kind of ended up doing loads of volunteer work. I, I, I did loads of volunteer These days, sadly, I see a shift in culture. Not, not for everyone. I don't want to paint everyone with the same brush, but I see a little bit of people being unwilling to do the volunteer stuff now. Um, almost like everyone wants paying for stuff, you know, everyone wants, well, if your goal is to be working in performance sport, then you need to kind of put yourself in the company of people who think and treat that very seriously, you know, and I was lucky enough that I was surrounded by people who were immersed in that. And through that, I became immersed in it. And it was all that mattered to me was, I'm going to get my experience because my pathway is to this and I need this for this and this. So ha- being able to make sense of that, you, p- people can make sense of that themselves, Lauren, but I think it can be really helped if you, if you have somebody to speak to that can help you give you another perspective on some of the decisions you're contemplating. Because I, a few occasions where it would have been probably quite easy for me, for example, to go back into working in professional rugby at the time because I'd just come out of professional rugby so I was already in that environment and I probably could have picked up work and I probably could have spent my time doing that I didn't want to do that um so having somebody help me navigate what else was available was was pivotal to me I can't you know imagine how I would have found swimming otherwise you know I wouldn't have had the experiences I've had and done the things that I've been lucky enough to be a part of if I hadn't been given a nudge by someone. So my my key piece of advice would be try to think about if there's someone you could try and access who would be able to just give you some advice, even if it's infrequently. And even if it's, you know, you know, done remotely, you know, it could be somebody that has maybe done something that you'd like to do. You know, because there's a lot of people, I think, and this is this is a really kind of bone of contention for me, Lauren, that you've unpicked here, right, is social media is full of a lot of crap, right? There's a lot of people on social media talking this big game about, about what they do and how they do it. And a lot of them don't really have much tech, contextual intelligence of being in that environment and having done it. Often the people who know what they're doing and having done it don't really talk about it much. They just get on with doing it. They're too busy doing it to be talking about doing it. So I often say like this, you know, the more you know, the less you need to show is one of these catchy phrases sticks in my head. And I think 
if you truly want to know how to navigate the waters, you might find some really brilliant people on social media also mind, but it's probably not going to be where you find your mentor. So try and kind of speak to people you know and see what personal connections are out there for people that may have done something similar to yourself. Um, and then try to make contact and reach out and see where there's potential for them to work with you. It might not always be that potential because these people are often very busy. And I can contend to that, you know, when you're in that environment and you're immersed, the reason why you're probably less likely a social media star is because you're so busy doing what other people are talking about doing. You're actually the ones doing it. You know, and I think those are the people I think that I was lucky enough to be exposed to. Not to mention that I'm so old that it wasn't social media when, when, when I had to do it. So I didn't have that conflicting information being given to me, you know. Um, but a mentor would be the key stepping stone there, Lauren, I think. And try and volunteer time, you know. Be prepared to work weird hours. Be prepared to, you know, eat late and to not expect to be paid a fortune. You know, you're not going to be a millionaire being a sports physio. You know, so you're doing it because you love sport, because you want to help people achieve in sport and you want to be part of something that's bigger than you are. So if you are, if that's the mindset that they have, you know, and they feel passionate about it, then try and find people who share that passion and people who maybe have done what you want to do and they can help you give you some advice on how to navigate the waters of that. Well, thanks, Reese. You know, we could chat to you for hours. Um and I remember even someone saying on one of the Millfield camps how when Reese talks, everyone just listens. Like no matter how loud your voice is, everyone just listens because your voice is very powerful. And um, I, I even received a message a few days ago from one of the summers from our last camp and she had competed and she'd actually achieved a qualifying time to get on a squad. And she was over the moon. She said she did a priming that we worked on before and she was over the moon. So you are having such a positive impact on so many people. And um, yeah, we've loved talking to you. Lauren, anything from you? Of course, there's always things from me. No, I would love to just say that although we, we did cross paths on my swimming career, we didn't really know each other. You know, the, the Swansea girls and the, the Welsh team was very lucky, I think, to have you as part of their team. And I would always look over from my little, with my little England kit on at the Commonwealth Games at the Welsh team and think, gosh, they're so supportive of each other. And it, it always looks like fun. So, But on, although our paths didn't cross then, since I've obviously finished, even a couple of years on, we've obviously worked together at Millfield and stuff like that. And it's just been a real privilege, a pleasure to, to really get to know you, Reese. And, and like Jazz just said, you are affecting people's lives beyond what you probably even think. And so for me, just personally, thanks for coming on. First of all, Jazz is right. We could just talk to you for hours, and we do, on the camps. But it's just, for me personally, it's been great to, to get to know you even beyond swimming. And, uh, you, you know, you're, you're just awesome. And we love you. So, yeah, Same it's great. Yeah. I, I'm, you know, the, 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 the opportunities to work with you guys has been hugely fun, as well as, you know, Again, it's always it's always amazing to me that when you think that it's one of those pitfalls, I think, when you are immersed in something for so long, you think, I can't be surprised by this anymore. And, you know, working with you is always bringing up little things and I'm seeing things. I'm like, I haven't really 
really seen that. You know, that's, so that learning opportunity continues, doesn't it? And that pursuit of a lifelong learning is what I think really shapes people, you know, who are really good in their roles and being able to work with you guys has, has given me even greater opportunity for that. So I'm grateful. And like you say, Lauren, I think we go on like a house on fire, the three of us, which, which really helps. I think, you know, um, it's unusual to find people that you connect with, you know, outside of the professional environment, as well as in the professional environment. And, you know, it's been, um, it's been hugely fun working with you girls. So I look forward to the next. Thanks for having me on. It's been, it's been great fun. I'll just finish off by saying thank you for listening to this episode. It's a special one for Jazz and I. We've been uh, really excited to do this one. And we hope you enjoy it. And we hope you tune in next week for another episode of the podcast. Mm-hmm.